Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. We welcome Global IQ listeners from around the world to our first broadcast of the year, Davos 2011, The Power Elite and the Remaking of the Global Economic Structure. Our guest, Robert Guest, is business editor of The Economist. He's calling in from London to join us for today's program. A copy of Robert's special report, The Rich and the Rest, is available to Global IQ listeners courtesy of The Economist in the resource section on the right side of your screen. Throughout the broadcast, we invite you to submit questions for Robert using the chat feature of the online forum. Please be sure to include your name and location. And a special greeting to World Affairs Council and Dallas Business Club members, economist subscribers, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Jones Day, one firm worldwide. This program would not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their expertise. If this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to listen to Global IQ AudioCast archives. They're available both on iTunes and the Council's website, dfwworld.org. Now, during today's program, you'll have the chance to raise your Global IQ and win prizes courtesy of The Economist by being the first to correctly answer one of the three IQ challenge questions via the online chat. Stay tuned for opportunities to win. Robert Guest oversees global business coverage for The Economist as business editor. Previously, he served as The Economist's Washington correspondent, where he wrote a feature column about America under the pen name Lexington. He was also The Economist Africa editor. He's the author of The Shackled Continent, a book about why Africa is poor and how it might prosper, and I thought we might touch on that as well today. Thank you, Robert, for being with us. My pleasure. Delighted to be here. I had the pleasure of reading your, your special report, which, uh, is, as mentioned just a while ago, I was able to read it earlier uh, last night on the iPad, and most of us in the United States will have it in our mailboxes uh, today or tomorrow. And in it, you uh, highlight a, a number of associations, some well-known, others not, many private and elite, uh, others where membership is now driven by talent and opportunity and maybe sometimes even by ethnic heritage. Uh, as, you, as you noted, in recent years, the elite are more globally connected than, than ever before, uh, if not by choice, then by necessity. Uh, could you comment to start us off uh, with some of your report's key findings? Well, the first, the first key finding is, I mean, I think most people think that the world is becoming much more unequal in terms of, you know, income and wealth. Um, and the first thing to note is that that's not actually true. The, the world has got significantly more equal over the past two decades because poor countries are growing much faster than rich countries. And that's a hugely significant fact that tends to get overlooked. However, and this is the, the other side of it, within most countries, inequality has risen substantially. And because most people's perspective tends to be you know, pretty much fixed on where they live, that has tremendous um, political uh, and social consequences. You know, if you're if you're looking to buy a house in in San Francisco or London, um, it's the the purchasing power of the people who also live in the same place that prices you out of the market. It's and it doesn't matter at all what the purchasing power of, of people in China has because you know they're not they're not buying property actually in London. They are buying some of the property here, but you know what I mean. The people tend to have very sort of locally fixed ideas. So the the inequality that people care about is going up. Okay, so that's 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 one thing. 
Um, other things that I've noticed is that the share, when you look at the wealthy people, the very wealthy people in the world, the, the share of them who made their money by inheriting it, i.e. by not earning it, has gone dramatically down um, over the, the, the past couple of generations. Now, a very large majority of the very rich um, are first-generation entrepreneurs um, or financiers or, or business people. And um, there, are, there are very big problems with, with how some of these people have made their money. I think particularly with, with global finance, you see people have been making bets that are on a kind of you know, heads-I-win, tails-the-taxpayer-loses basis. Um, and and that's, that, that, as we all know, has caused some immense problems. That was the sort of the root of the, the financial crisis of 2008. But if you step back from that, the majority of, of, of the very rich people in the world, and also a majority of the influential people in the world, um, depend for, for, for their wealth and their influence on being able to please large numbers of other people. Um, now, I sort of rather, rather boldly assert that the elite work for us. Um, it's a slight exaggeration, but if you look at it, um, people who, who, who run big companies, if, they, if their products don't um, strike you know, the buying public. If, if consumers don't think that, that their products are better than other companies' products, they're not going to buy them, and the company goes bust. So there's a, a huge incentive for, for those, those parts of the elite to serve the public. The same is true in, um, in, in politics. Voters in democracies um, have the opportunity of throwing out any politician who displeases them. And so um, the politicians have to be tremendously um, responsive to people's needs. And it's also true in the realm of ideas. I mean, there's lots of people trying to make uh, fortunes or become influential by coming up with, with new ideas. Um, and you have to come up with ones that people appreciate, that actually work, that, uh, that produce products that people want to buy, um, or that um, spark political movements that people care about. And the ideas that, that people like tend to become influential. And, and if, it's, if the idea is to do with a, a product, then, then you're going to make money from it. And if it's something different, like say, you know, you start something like Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch, and you, you put a, a, a focus on, on human rights issues, those ideas become popular um, you know, only if you're able to persuade large numbers of people. So um, my, I think my central theme is that um, although you can complain an awful lot about many individuals within the elite, that um, by and large, the elite is much more meritocratic than it has been in the past. Now, there are, there are problems with that that one can get into later. But I think that's a fair summary of, of, of what I'm saying in the report. Appreciate that. David Rothkopf, who has spoken at a number of World Affairs Councils around the country, wrote uh, a few years ago, Superclass, The Global Power Elite, and I think he said it, uh, it, was, it consisted of about 6,000 politicians, CEOs, and others. Your research sort of brought you to a different conclusion, and, and can you give us an idea of a, a number of people, if you're going to try to say how many people compose the, 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 the global elite? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's always going to be a very arbitrary number. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that David Rothkopf, I mean, I thought it was a, it was a very interesting book that he wrote, very well-researched um, and, and, and well worth people's while reading. Um, he comes up with the number 6,000. I would go with a much larger number. Um, I think that the, the, the group of people who, who really affect uh, what goes on in the world, um, the, the, the ones to watch are, roughly speaking, the top 1%. Um, and because the you know Rothkopf picks six thousand people, but there's 
there's there's a huge amount of movement. I mean, you know, a lot of CEOs, they'll be CEO for a bit and then they'll switch over and someone else will do it. And actually, you know, CEOs will have a lot of people in the boardroom that they're listening to and taking advice from. I think there is um, a, a significant class of people in the world, and it's very widely spread, um, who are extremely um, clever, by and large, um, and very hardworking and very mobile. Um, and, and they form a, a cluster. They talk to each other a lot. They move around a lot. You see them um, in, in, in the big companies. You see them in the big um, UN agencies. Um, you see them working in, in, in government. You see them working in literary circles. You see them working in scientific circles. And it's basically the kind, the kind of people who do an awful lot of transatlantic and transpacific flights um, are the people who are the prime movers in, in spreading new ideas around the world. And I think that's the group that you, you, you have to pay attention to if you're thinking about the elite. And a lot of them will be in Davos, I guess, beginning uh, on January 26th. The theme of this year's conference is shared norms for the new reality. That has a nice ring to it, but, but what does it really mean? No, I haven't the faintest idea what that means. That sounds like complete gibberish to me. Oh, sorry, sorry. That's that's like a, a wonderful idea. I was that, um, you could give me some insight. <laughs> Shared norms for the new reality. You know, I think that's I skipped on that the website, bit on the yeah. program. I mean, I, 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 I don't have any clue what that means. It, 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 I think it means people getting together and talking about. I mean, what look, these kind of meetings? It's people get together, and what they're trying to do is talking about, you know, hey, what on earth is going on in the world at the moment? It's, it's, it's a bunch of people from different parts of the world, and they're, 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 they're trying to figure out what's going on because the, I mean, the currency that really matters um, in, in, in business um, and in politics and in science um, is information. And for, for people to run a large multinational or, or even a, a small company that's coming up with sort of new products, you want to know what's happening in parts of the world where you don't live. It's very easy to find out um, what's going on you know, in your own neighborhood. It's very easy to find out what's going on in your own industry. But most people don't normally, um, they're not normally exposed to information about what's going on in different industries and different parts of the world. And so these powwows are a way that people sort of, you know, try to figure out what it is that other people are thinking about. Um, and then they go away and they sort of think to themselves, well, how does that apply to what I'm doing? And so it's a great big information swapping um, uh, meetup. And Davos is certainly a lot less private than it used to be. One of our listeners, crawling William, with journalists, completely crawling with journalists. But. William Steading just wrote and asked this, and he says, Davos is the presumptive seat of power at least once per year, but power is a tricky thing, more than economic and political. He says legitimacy may be power's most important element. How do those who gather among the elite at Davos consider the necessity of accumulating legitimacy? It's an interesting thought. Um, well, it sort of depends on what line of business they're in. I mean, if if they're politicians, then uh, if they're if they're in a democracy, then the way they accumulate legitimacy is by winning elections, um, and then by sort of governing within the law after having won those elections. It's obviously a very different question if you're one of the people running China, where you know, in my view, you're not legitimate at all and you can't be until you have elections but the way that they would argue that they're legitimate is that you know they're sort of benign autocrats who are you know governing a country that would otherwise be in total chaos and they've managed to generate tremendous economic growth and and therefore people are, are happy to, to be ruled and democracy is is, is 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 too messy now i think that's complete rubbish i think that um 
you know, the reason China has been growing very fast over the past few decades is because the Communist Party has relaxed its grip. I mean, it used to be that um, China was just utterly crushed beneath the weight of uh, Mao Zedong's dictatorship, and you weren't allowed to do anything um, in the way of business. You weren't allowed to own anything. Everyone was crammed into collective farms where they starved. So what you've seen is a kind of rebound after the Communist Party has taken sort of one boot um, off the Chinese people's heads. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, China is sort of rebounding back to its sort of natural position, which is, you know, a nation of 1.3 billion people that used to be, you know, the largest economy in the world is sort of heading back that way. Um, I, you know, for, for, for the Chinese Communist Party to take credit for that is, is like me taking credit for, you know, stealing all your stuff and then handing some of it back. Um, so I how do, how, do, how do people get legitimacy? In politics, through elections. In business, through um, building a better mousetrap by, building, by, by coming up with products that people want to buy at a price they want to pay. Um, and that's a, that is, that is a, um, that's a means of, of getting feedback from the public. That's a means of, 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 of acquiring legitimacy that happens sort of every second, you know, because a, a company that ceases to, to please consumers can go out of business very quickly indeed. So I, think that's I want to come, way. want to come back later and spend some more time on China, but but on Davos, you know, in in past years, sometimes there's been a major event or a, a key speech. Last year, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy called for a restructure of the capitalist system. Are are you aware of any major presentation or topic that's going to be addressed at uh, at this month's uh, meeting? Well, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of topics. Everyone's very excited about, you know, everyone's keen to know what's going on in China. Everyone's very keen to know what's going on um, in, 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 in the environment. Um, everybody's worrying about um, natural resources and, you know, where, where, where the energy of tomorrow is going to come from. Um, there's concern about um, international organized crime. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's a very wide range of topics being discussed. Um, there's going to be quite a lot of discussion about Africa as well. There's this sort of sense that, you know, the African economies are doing better than they were and wondering whether that's owing to something structural or is it just because oil and, and commodity prices are high. Um, and we'll see what people think. Well, our first challenge question ties in Davos in Africa. Uh, because yep. we want to give uh, a, a copy of your book to the uh, first person who correctly answers this question. Uh, the boss of which company said that he would not attend Davos this year because he would rather listen to his employees? So listeners, uh, just let us know as quickly as you can. Was it uh, the boss of Sony, Toyota, or Fujitsu who said that he would not attend Davos this year because he would rather listen to his employees? And we'll send you a copy of Robert's book, The Shackled Continent. Um, you, you mentioned some other, in, in your report, uh, meetings or conferences or associations where the world's elite uh, off, often gather. Um, one of them, I, I think, was called uh, Bild Bilderberg. Yes. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? And then there was also the uh, one that I had not, I should have known about, but the G30. Um, and, and if you tell us more about that and its in, in impact. Okay. Uh, those are two very different kinds of organizations. I'm not, I'll tell you about the G30 first because that, okay. that, that's easier. That is a really small 
technical group of people who used to be, for example, heads of central banks or, or, or similar kinds of jobs, and they get together and they, they just really think about one subject, which is financial regulation. Um, and they come up with, you know, reports which can be very influential because they're written by people who really know their stuff um, and, and, and really know about, you know, how, how particular ideas can be put into action because most of them are sort of ex-government. Um, the, the Bilderberg group is fascinating because it's a kind of, um, it's one of those groups that um, attracts lots of conspiracy theories. I mean, I, I remember doing some election reporting in America once. I went into a library in Tennessee because I was uh, doing some reporting there and I asked some chap I met um, what he you know what he thought about the the, the the midterm elections that were going on that year and he said that they didn't really matter at all and what really mattered was the new world order and the Bilderberg group um, and how they were stitching up the world and um, plotting to bring back um, Nazism and communism and slavery and all sorts of stuff like that um, and this I this is this is to me, a sign that you have to sort of back slowly out of the room because this is completely bonkers. But they, what it is, is a, um, it's a it's a rather small private meeting where a bunch of powerful and influential people get together and they have, and this is this is where the, the, the conspiracy thing comes in, they have off-the-record meetings. So they have meetings which are, where the, the conversations are not published um, and they're not um, broadcast and, and, and no reporters are allowed to um, report on what goes on. Now, um, a lot of people really don't like that. They think that um, important people, everything they say should be public. I don't agree with that. I think it's quite reasonable to do these things. And the reason is that a lot of the, these people want to have honest conversations with other people where the um, you know, the, the Prime Minister of Spain, for example, is having a conversation with, you know, someone from China, and they want to be able to say what they actually think without it appearing in the, the, news, the, the newspapers the next morning. And they also want to be able to say things like, look, I really don't understand so-and-so, can you explain it to me? Which is much harder, it's very hard for them to say um, in public. Um, so it's a way that people express information about what they really think. I mean, you know, say, say you're asking a question about Vladimir Putin and, you know, someone wants to say, well, so what do you really think of him? There's the diplomatic answer and there's the honest answer and they'll be very different. Um, as we saw on WikiLeaks. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, as we saw on WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks is a very good example of why a certain amount of, you know, there's some things that have to be done um, in public, but there are certain things where, you know, there's, there's the diplomatic answer and there's the honest one and you actually need both. So who decides who is admitted or invited to Bilderberg? Yeah, well, there's, the, there's a committee that's run by a bloke called Etienne Davignon, um, and, um, who's a sort of, you know, he's one of the, the, the great and good in, in Europe. He's a former member of the European Commission, and he sits on a bunch of boards. And it's, but it's, I mean, like, like most of these meetings, it's a sort of, um, it, it's, a, it, it, it's something that comes together voluntarily. Um, you know, a group of people say, wouldn't it be interesting to have discussions about, um, you know, such and such a topic, and they, they get together and talk about it. And if it if it goes well, then, you know, it continues. And if it doesn't, then it stops. Um, and various people have, have, have found it useful to go to this. Um, and so they continue to go. Um, and, you know, they, they there were some, some of the big discussions about whether, for example, the euro, the European single currency was going to work, came out of Bilderberg. Um, it's you know it's a useful way for um, busy but important people to talk to each other off the record. Oh, are there some other uh, 
groups that are equally as influential that we should know about? Well, it's very hard to measure influence. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, 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 in different areas, I mean, there's, there's, there's the Bao Forum in, in, in China where you have a bunch of people get together and talk about mostly Asian stuff and China-centric stuff. Um, you have um, Carlos Slim, uh, the richest man in the world, who's a, a Mexican tycoon. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he convened something called the Fathers and Sons Meeting, where a group of Latin American tycoons get together, um, ostensibly to discuss philanthropy, but I suspect rather more than that is discussed behind closed doors. Um, these things are quite common. I mean, you know, sometimes sometimes meetings will simply be in the form of um, people getting together at the very large house of somebody who's got a lot of money, but um, sort of regular ones that people can plan their their their, their, their calendars around and which bring together people from different parts of the world. Um, they're very popular because, you know, as I said earlier, the, the, the most important currency today is information, um, and there's so much of it out there that the ability to distill it through the brains of people who've been really considering it and know the area um, is very useful. And, and that's a, a natural segue into really the role of think tanks, which you, you, you spoke quite a bit about in your report, um, and that they perhaps are more influential in the United States or more common than in some other countries. And perhaps you could comment some on that. Sure. They're certainly more influential in the United States than they are, um, I think, in any other country I, I can think of. Um, the, 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 in, in, in a lot of European countries, for example, most of the thinking about policy will be done by a permanent bureaucracy, which will you know, pretend to be um, neutral, as in it will serve uh, governments of any ideological stripe. But it does consist entirely of people who've, who've spent their entire lives working in government and so will, at the very least, not be very keen on the idea of, for example, shrinking the size of government. Um, so that's, that's one way of, of feeding ideas to politicians. Um, in America, you do have a permanent bureaucracy, but it changes much more because when, for example, the, the, the president comes in at the beginning of his term, he will appoint a very large number of people to senior positions in, in the federal bureaucracy. Um, and you have a number of think tanks. Um, now, they tend to be um, ideological. They'll either be conservative or liberal um, or, or, or libertarian. Um, and they are places where a lot of people who like to think long and hard um, about policy issues um, will we'll do that and will produce um, reports and papers that are, are directly relevant to the legislation which is being considered this week. And they will make sure that those reports, those summaries, um, are put into the hands of um, lawmakers who, who have to make up their minds about you know, a very large number of subjects which they can't possibly be expert in all of them. And so on the conservative side, you'll have the, the Heritage Foundation, which is very influential when, when Republicans are in the ascendancy, um, and also the, the American Enterprise Institute. And then on the, the other side, you'll have um, things like the, uh, the Center for American Progress, which is very much a sort of democratic think tank you know, with a large D. Um, and uh, the Brookings Institution, Brookings, which, right. mm-hmm. you know, which is, it, it says it's nonpartisan, but um, it's, uh, it does seem to have a rather larger number of liberal scholars working there than conservative ones, but not, you know, not, not exclusively so. Um, and I think they serve a very useful function because they, they've got people there 
who are not worried about losing their jobs for saying something incendiary, who can come up with um, really quite radical ideas, which um, maybe they turn into something that really works, like welfare reform, uh, or maybe they just get sort of quietly forgotten, but they can, they can float them, and they can float them in a way that tends to get um, media attention because, I mean, journalists in Washington, D.C. know that the think tankers um, are influential. Um, and, and, and they're floated. It's, it's, it's not like sort of studies that um, academics at universities come up with, where quite often people will come up with stuff that has nothing to do with anything that's being considered this year, and it's just what, what interests them, you know, which is fair enough. It's a wonderful thing to do, but it's less likely to be influential over the political process. Um, and it's less likely to get publicity because, I mean, journalists will talk to think tankers because they know that they're influential. And there's a lot of circulation between um, think tanks and government. I mean, when a new, ins when a new um, administration comes in, you'll probably find, you know, a couple of dozen people from the Brookings Institution will go and join it. Right. Um, I mean, I really often think that they're holding tanks or waiting rooms for <laughs> the administration to come in, and then they can draw on that talent. Absolutely. I mean, you know, but they're, they're not waiting rooms in the sense of people twiddling their thumbs. I mean, they're, they're waiting rooms where people are sitting there and very intensively thinking about um, what it is they would like to do um, if they're next in power um, and where they, they remain close to um, where, where, you know, close to the federal government and they remain close to the sources of information about what's going on. Um, and so it keeps them fresh. It keeps them thinking about issues. And you've seen a lot of, you know, a lot of really good ideas have come out of think tanks. I mentioned welfare reform, you know, the Marshall Plan, that kind Marshall of thing. A lot, plan, of, a, lot, right. a lot of very bad ideas have come out of think tanks as well. I mean, the Iraq War would be an obvious example. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's what sort of stimulates the, the American political process. Um, and, and I think that's on balance a good thing. Let me congratulate Bill Skeeters. Uh, Robert, he'll be reading your book. He Excellent. answered the, the and knew that the uh, boss, of, it was the uh, head of Sony that said he would rather listen to his employees than go to Davos. Bill Blessing asks, on issues such as the environment and population, are the elite leaders or are the elite leaders or followers of public opinion? I think that the elite are very divided on this issue. Um, you have, there's, there's a strong current that says that um, overpopulation is bad, and you know um, we've got to do something to 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 curb it. Um, and then there's another strand, which which I tend to follow, which says two things. Firstly, that um, once people get once poor people get rich, they automatically limit the size of their families. We've seen that in every country that's developed. So I think that the the population problem is 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 exaggerated. I think that the world population will peak at a certain point and we don't know exactly where that'll be, but call it nine billion and then and it'll sort of gently subside far into the distance because you find that in a more um, you know, in richer societies, people tend to have fewer children, and they tend to invest more time in in educating them and rearing them. Um, and they also tend to start. You know, women in in in, uh, in richer countries tend to um, spend longer in education and then start careers, and then not really start thinking about having babies until they're 30, and then you know try to pack them all in between the ages of 30 and 35. And, and it's very difficult to do that and have 10 children. You know, it was almost impossible. So. Um, you see that the family sizes are reduced, um, and um, you see that um, the population, the, the birth rates fallen below replacement um, in um, most rich countries. 
um, America is just about on replacement, and the population continues to grow because of immigration, which I think is a good thing. Exactly. Right. Um, but in most in most rich countries, um, the uh, the population is declining, and it's also going to start declining in China very soon as well because they had incredibly coercive. Um, I mean, China is very unusual in, 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 in the degree of coercion they had in their, their population policies. So um, I think that uh, the population problem will solve itself. Um, that's not to say that there won't be sort of huge problems for the environment. Um, but I think that having a large number of people means also that you have a large number of people thinking about solutions. And that's an important thing to remember. The more people there are in the world the more chances there are of coming up with technological fixes for environmental problems. Um, so it, it works both ways, and I think we'll muddle through somehow. Your report starts uh, with there are more millionaires than Australians. Give us a sense of where most of the millionaires live, billionaires. There, there are a lot of them here in Texas, but where else might we find them? <laughs> Um, it, well, I mean, millionaires and billionaires are sort of quite, quite different things. I mean, you know, there's, there are. I've learned that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sound, it, 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 those, the words sound so similar that you think that they're referring to the same thing. But a billionaire or something, or something that's similar, you know, but a, a billionaire is a thousand little millionaires sort of standing on each other's shoulders. I mean, it really their jets are much faster. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, there are about a thousand billionaires in the world which is not a very large number, but it's a fantastically large amount of money. Um, and slightly about 40% of them are in uh, the United States. And then you have the next largest chunk would be in Europe. Um, and then the, the fast-growing number would be in Asia, which is sort of rapidly increasing the, the, the number of such people. But, um, I mean, the when you get to sort of millionaire level, um, there are there are much much larger numbers of people. Um, I say more 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 millionaires than Australians, um, and you know that's according to Credit Suisse there are uh, something like 25 million such people, or there were in sort of mid mid 2010, which is about 0.5 percent of the world's adult population. One person in 200 is a a dollar millionaire. Um, there again, spread. You know, I mean, the main places are um, the United States. Uh, Western Europe um, and increasingly Asia, um, and it sort of you, the, with, with the, the, the pyramid is sort of because it's tremendously sort of um, narrow at the top and then spreads a lot um, at, at the bottom. You'll find that the vast majority of millionaires are in the sort of bottom millionaire category, and they've got sort of you know a little bit more than one million dollars and could easily sort of slip below it again. Um, and these people. You know, most of them, uh, particularly in, in America, will be what you would think of as quite regular people. I mean, there will be people who have started their own company, worked very hard um, over a lifetime, um, saved a lot. Um, and a lot of them are not flashy at all. I mean, there was that, that great book, The Millionaire Next Door, that described the life of the median millionaire and how he wore $40 shoes and had not bought a new suit for a very long time and drove a Ford. Um, you know, dry cleaning are, shops. Yep. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, you know, people who have done, you know, set up their own company and built something. Um, they're also, you know, there are they're, they're relatively smaller number of people who've, who've, who've got it through um, saving from a, a normal salary. But I mean, you see a lot of it comes from if it's sort of household wealth. If you have um, 
you know, a dentist married to another dentist, and they're making, you know, in America, there would be on average $200,000 a year each. Um, it's over a lifetime, it's perfectly possible to save a million dollars out of that. Um, so a, a lot of them are sort of more normal than you'd think. Um, the, the, the billionaires, on the other hand, live, um, I mean, you know, they're, they're subject to all the same uh, problems of, you know, unhappy marriages and, and um, uh, health and all that kind of thing as, as the rest of us. But the amount of money that they have at their disposal is, is quite staggering. Um, when we first started talking, you, you, you talked about how there's this change in, a, in inequality and it's growing in, some, in a number of, of countries. Um, can you draw some conclusions about the impact of inequality on a country's social welfare, uh, divorce rates, health, education, and, and maybe also comment on some of the outliers that may distort some of the uh, conclusions that you or others might have. Okay. Well, this is, and this is, this is a very live debate uh, in, in, in Europe, particularly, and, and also in America. Um, there, was, there was a book recently called The Spirit Level, where uh, the two authors, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, um, argued that inequality was the cause of spectacular amounts of, 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 of social problems. They said that um, countries uh, that were more unequal um, were likely to have um, worse murder rates, worse health um, instances, higher rates of crime, um, higher, you know, higher rates of obesity, uh, all sorts of things like that that go above and beyond what you would expect to be the case. Um, and that, that sort of completely caught fire on, on the left in England because it sort of appeared to provide um, empirical backup for the, the policy preferences of all the people who thought that we should tax rich people at sort of 95% a year. Um, however, I mean, other people have looked at their data and said, you know what, um, this, this, this doesn't actually stand up. And one of the reasons is that um, you have often one or two outliers, um, one or two countries that are way off the scale on a particular thing, which are distorting the picture. And so you can't actually make the conclusions you're drawing. So, for example, the, the idea that um, more equal societies um, live longer. Um, depends almost entirely on the fact that Japanese people live much longer than anybody else. And you know, the, the authors of the book say that's because Japan is a very equal society. But, I mean, you know, I used to live there, and I would guess that much more likely to be because Japanese people have an incredibly healthy diet and, and you know, exercise more because um, you have to walk everywhere because it's, uh, it's very hard to find somewhere to park your car. Um, now, I could be wrong, but it seems that that undermines it. And then things like the, they say that unequal societies have greater murder rates. Again, um, that depends on the one very big outlier, which is the United States, which has a much, much higher murder rate than any other um, rich country. Um, and you can go into all sorts of reasons for why the United States has a higher murder rate than other countries. Some people would say it's to do with guns. Some people would say to do with sort of particular problems of the inner city. But it's not at all obvious that it's to do with inequality per se. So um, I, I think that the um, I think that inequality is probably not a good thing. But it kind of depends on what you you know if you're, if you're looking for a sort of fair society. Um, there's sort of two ways you can look at it. I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's very unfair that, um, you know, such and such a sports star makes 
300 times more money than the the lady who cleans your office, um, even though they both work equally hard. And yeah, you say, well, okay, that does sound a bit unfair. On the other hand, you know, if your solution is to have very, very high taxes on the wealthy, um, you're going to hit people who have um, spent their entire lives working really, really hard to build up a business and who've risked, you know, maybe risked their house in order to come up with the startup capital. And you'll be taking money from those people and giving it to people who have neither worked as hard nor um, put any of their own money at risk in pursuit of, of, of greater rewards. And that doesn't seem very fair either. So you've got these two contradictory impulses, um, which are very hard to square. And that's, you know, I mean, that's why we have politics, so that people can have a debate about what they think is the, the best way of dealing with that. And you're going to come up with very different answers, really, depending on whether you live somewhere like Sweden or somewhere like uh, the United States. And it's, and it's legitimate for countries to take different approaches to these things. Now, me personally, I much prefer the American way. I think that the idea that you get more dynamism in society if you allow people to keep the rewards of their labors um, it's a very positive one. It's something that, that is one of the reasons, I think, why America generates you know, far more new products, brands, Nobel Prizes, um, excellent movies, all those kind of things than, than, than any other country you can think of. And I think that's a great addition to the, the sum of human happiness. But equally, some people think Sweden's a really nice place to live. Um, I'm not one of them, but, uh, but there you go. Well, continuing along these lines, Brian uh, Wirtz, he says, do you believe that Jimmy Carter's notion of the greatest risk to global development is the growing chasm between the richest and poorest people on the earth, whereby citizens of the 10 wealthiest countries are now 75 times richer than those who live in the 10 poorest ones, and the separation is increasing every year? If so, how can we bring attention to the power elite to invest in this risk rather than growing their wealth further? Um, the short answer is no, I don't agree with that. Um, I think, I mean, if you're looking at the gap between the very richest countries and the very poorest countries, then you're, you're comparing, you know, America, Switzerland, etc., with um, places like Somalia and Congo. Um, and you're missing the very interesting stuff which is going on in the middle, which is the sort of massive rise of countries that used to be poor but are now middle income. So sort of, you know, I mean, China and increasingly India, the vast swathes of humanity are moving from, from poverty into um, some kind of middle-class existence, and that's the big story of the last um, 30 years. Now, what's going on in the very poorest countries, who are a diminishing proportion of, of the world population, is tragic, okay? But I don't think that they're poor because the rich are rich. Um, I mean, having spent you know, for seven years in Africa, um, I would say that the reason somewhere like Congo is poor doesn't have a great deal to do with the fact that, you know, Bill Gates has got lots of money. Um, it's got to do with the fact that the country is run by um, a chaotic mishmash of warring factions um, who are squabbling over diamond mines and gold mines and um, occasionally rampaging into villages, killing people with machetes and stealing their stuff. I think that's much more, that's a much greater influence on, 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 on poverty in those places. And I think that the solution to that is, you know, I mean, I suppose some things that the, the elite could do would help, but mostly the solutions 
uh, to, to countries' political problems have to come from within. Even the United States finds it very hard to impose a new governance structure um, on, on, on an alien country, as we saw in Iraq and uh, in Afghanistan. Um, but you do see instances where countries have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, and you've seen this in, in Liberia, for example, which used to be um, embroiled in a civil war so savage that um, the rebel soldiers used to play a game where they would uh, ask, they would take bets on the, the sex of an infant in a, a, a pregnant woman's stomach, and then they would find out. Um, I'm sorry to give you that, but that's, that's the kind of level that Liberia was at in the 1980s. And now it has, you know, a democratically elected woman president and things are starting to get better. And that, that solution, it, it can't be imposed from outside. It's something that the people have to, have to manage for themselves. Um, so, so, no, I don't agree with Jimmy Carter. I think he's got the diagnosis wrong. This gives me another good opportunity to give one of our listeners uh, an, another copy of The Shackled Continent, your book. Um, here's the trivia challenge question. Representatives of which country have faced controversy with regards to their invitation to the World Economic Forum in Davos this year? Saudi Arabia, Japan, or Libya? Be the first to uh, reply correctly to that question, and we'll send you a copy of The Shackled Continent by Robert Guest. Robert, you spent quite a bit of time in the report comparing um, uh, India and, and China, and you, you, you spoke about the, I may not be pronouncing it correctly, but the hukou system, which is the residency permits. Um, there is such a difference in China between the coastal cities and the interior, and, and you also highlighted, which I think sometimes we forget in this country, that uh, nearly 400 million Chinese still live on, on less than $2 a day. Uh, could you elaborate more on, 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 on the difference in, of, of wealth in China? The, um, the China, China is very interesting because the, the gap between rich and poor in China has grown dramatically over the past um, you know, couple of decades. Um, and there's, there's a huge gap between rich and poor, and it very, sorry, between rural and urban. And it's enforced in a way that having lived in South Africa just reminded me immensely of the, the, the past system under apartheid there, that um, if you are not born, in, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a, a, a resident of one of the prosperous cities like Shanghai and you have a permit to live there, then you're entitled to all the government services there. And you can use the schools and the clinics and you can live there and it's very easy to get a job there. Um, but if you are a rural migrant worker, it's like you're an illegal alien in your own, in your own homeland. Um, you don't have a right to use um, the public services there. You can actually be evicted from the city and sent back to your, your, your home province or your hometown um, if you displease the authorities in any way. Um, and it creates these two completely separate classes of citizen. And you, you talk to um, you know, people who were not born in, in, in Shanghai but live there about how they feel about that. And they absolutely live it. And, you know, they can't, they can't complain sort of loudly because, you know, they might get thrown out of the city. But they think it's terribly unfair. And it's a sort of huge, um, you know, it, it, it's great for the people who live there because they get, you know, cheaper servants and um, they, they, they can prevent sort of shanty towns from appearing on their doorsteps. But it's, 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 it's wretched for the people who don't come from there. And that system is just one of the many ways that the Chinese government... Um, you know, allows the 
the better off people in, in, in the country to use the, the coercive power of the state to keep the rest down. Um, I think it's a completely scandalous system. And, and is the hookah system still then just as prevalent as it has been? Is there any change in that or not? Um, it's not it's not as extreme as it was. Um, the the speed with which you know the the degree to which they can just deport you from the city at, a, at the drop of a hat is not as much as it was. So you know there has been some improvement there, um, but it varies from city to city because each city. I mean, it used to be that the government, the central government, said you know we will enforce this, and now the the the, the, the discretion has been handed to cities, and some of them enforce it um, in very unpleasant ways, and some of them aren't quite so bad. It sort of you know. Depends on who's in charge locally, but overall, you know, the fact that being Chinese doesn't entitle you to live and work where you want within China. I mean, it's a very big difference between that and a free country. Let me congratulate Bill Blessing, who uh, gave us the correct answer. Libya representatives of Libya have faced controversy with regards to their invitation to the World Economic Forum in Davos this year, and uh, Bill will be sending you a copy. Of, of Robert's book. Robert, you also talked about the insulation of India's elite um, when you were comparing India and, and China, and is, is, is that becoming uh, more severe in India now or, or, or less? You, there, there, are, there are some fantastically rich people in India um, who've, who've become so over the past, I mean, since, since the early 1990s when the Indian economy started opening up. Um, and they're, they're very conspicuous in India because the poorest of the poor in India are still very poor indeed. And because India is a free country, unlike China, the poor are much more in your face there. You know, whereas the, if you were a beggar in um, you know, Beijing or somewhere, the police would very rapidly move you on. Um, the police in India can't do that. Um, and also, if there's something bad going on in India, because you have a free press, you'll learn about it very quickly. Um, so the fact that, you know, the world's fourth richest man lives in Bombay and has built himself a 27-story house there, which is in fact hideous, but, you know, very opulent, three helipads, I think, it's very conspicuous because, you know, you, in, the, in the slums next door you have much more poorer people. So that strikes a lot of people as, 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 as being very, very problematic. But, I mean, the, the Indians I've spoken to, and there, there are some pretty big exceptions to this because there are some people who, who've gotten rich corruptly in India, but by and large, people... People think that the, the, the elite in India, the business tycoons at any rate, um, have got there by um, genuinely creating value. They've created a, a software industry where there was nothing before. They've, they've, they, they, they build cars, they, they, they build trucks, they do sort of transport and set up airlines. Um, and generally, when you're talking to, to people, even, even very poor people in the slums, I've gone into the slums outside Bombay and talked to people who are living 11 to a room there. And, and ask them, you know, well, how do you feel about the very rich people who, who take cocktails in the Taj Hotel downtown? And, and people, there's amazing answers. People say, well, you know, they probably work very hard to get where they are, and, and we've got to work hard too, and then maybe we'll get something. Um, and that's, that's an indication of how much hope people have that their lives will get better. And the reason they have that hope is because um, their lives really have got better over the past 20 years. Um, and you'll see, for example, that you know, they've gone from no mobile phones in the country to something like um, 500 million in, in, in just no time at all. Um, and you'll, you, know, you go into little sort of sweatshops in the slums, you'll find that um, all the guys working at 
um, sewing machines will, will have little mobile phones sitting on top of their, um, their, their, their sewing machines, which they didn't have two years ago, and which actually make it a lot easier for them to you know, keep in contact with their daughter who's now working in a call center. Um, and you know, they, they feel that there's a greater chance that the family, you know, their children will earn more than them and possibly get more schooling. Um, and that things will get better. So I think it's a very encouraging thing. And, and because, because it's a democratic country, if things go wrong, if things are bad, it, it self-corrects. It has the capacity to um, you know, change course in a way that's much harder for China to do. You know, one of the themes that I think drives the American economy is sort of Horatio Alger, the American dreams, rags the riches, and you sort of touched on that with India. Is, is success and wealth celebrated, in, say, in China, or, or is it resented? In India, you've said it's, it, it can be celebrated. But what about in China? In China, obviously, there are, there, are, there are many people who do celebrate it, but I think there's much greater resentment there. I mean, it's, very, it's, very, you know, it's, it's a dictatorship, so you can't do it, – it's very hard to do honest opinion polls there because people are frightened that there may be negative consequences. You might get thrown in jail if they say the wrong thing. Um, nonetheless – it's pretty clear that a lot of people do resent um, the very close nexus between the Communist Party and the people who've made money by being members of the Communist Party. You know, if you have people who've made money because they've used the fact that they're the local party boss to bulldoze 50 people's houses and put up a shopping mall there, you know, people get very angry at that. And you see um, roughly 10,000 violent demonstrations, riots every year in China. Um, you see massive amount of anger going around um, in, in, in the blogosphere in China. I mean, it's sort of one of those areas where, I mean, they kind of talk in code, but uh, and, and officially it's okay to be upset about corruption. So that's something that they talk about a lot. And you had, for example, there was a, a, a case a few months ago where the um, son of a local police chief in China, uh, was he was allegedly drink driving, and he ran over and killed someone, and um, he drove off shouting out of the window, "Make a report if you dare! My dad is Li Gang," which was the name of the, the local police chief. And um, this 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 phrase, "My dad is Li Gang," suddenly went viral in the Chinese blogosphere. People were sort of writing poems and pop songs and things with that as the chorus. People were making jokes about, you know, the, the school kid who comes into class and says, um, sorry, I didn't do my homework, but my dad is Li Gang. Um, and this, this, this is a kind of form of protest that gives you an idea of how much they resent the fact that members of the ruling party, you know, you can't vote them out of office. The law won't stand up to them because the law is subordinate to the party. They're, they're basically above the law. Um, and this guy, you know, it became so big that the central government had to, you know, arrest this guy um, and, and, and force his father to apologize on national TV. But the thing is, you know, most of the time he wouldn't have been so stupid as to shout out. You know, he's effectively shouting out through the window, hey, I'm a member of the Communist Party, so I'm above the law, and you lot can all get stuffed. It was, had he not said that out of the window, he would undoubtedly have got away with it. And that's the message that, that I think most Chinese people brought away from that incident. And I, th I think they're, they're absolutely livid about it. Um, I want to be sure we give uh, one of our listeners an opportunity to receive another copy of your book, The Shackled Continent. So this question is, the author of which novel and he was a speaker at Davos in 2009, publicly decried the World Economic Forum's annual meeting as a waste of time. Is it the author of The Cat's Cradle, The Black Swan, or The Ornix and the Crake? 
We have a question from Brian. Do you see a problem with our world's investment focus with the fact that rural third world citizens have mobile phone access but no access to fundamental human needs such as clean water? Um, I mean, yes, I do think yes. that's a problem. <laughs> I, think <of> so. <laughs> I mean, of course. I mean, you know, people need water. The question, the question is the mechanisms for getting water to people. Um, the reason that mobile phones have spread so quickly um, is, I mean, not universally, not everyone's got one, but the reason they've spread so quickly is because it's been a, a commercial operation. Um, it's one where there are tremendous economies of scale in a way that there aren't so much with water. Um, I mean, there are some, but not as much. Um, and it's, it's, it's a profit-driven thing, and people have figured out ways of um, delivering these things, and people pay for them, and, you know, it's, it's done in a very different way in, um, in, in, in poor countries from the way it is in, in rich countries. It tends to be sort of prepaid things, and um, they will, you know, people are even starting to use mobile phones as, 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 as like, like debit cards, a way of sort of using, sending money across long distances or even just to the shopkeeper opposite you for people who don't have bank accounts and credit cards. Um, so the uh, mobile phones have spread very fast because there was a profit in it. It's much harder to um, do that with water. Um, and it's partly a sort of legacy problem that in a lot of countries, um, people have said that water is a human right and therefore the government will provide it. And, and once that happens, you know, once you say it's a human right, and particularly if you say it's free, which they do in some countries, then you don't get it because nobody has an incentive to make sure that it gets there. And if, you know, the, uh, so, so, so some peasant in a village finds that his uh, water's not running anymore, nobody nobody's being paid, nobody's, nobody gets fired if he doesn't get that connection fixed very quickly. Whereas, um, you know, in a place where people are paying their water bill, um, the company that's, that's, that's selling you the water has a great incentive to get it to you very quickly. Now, the, the question of how you get water to people in really remote places is very difficult. I mean, it's much easier to give it to people in cities than it is to give it to people who are, who are far out in the countryside. Um, and it's, it's also very difficult to sink the necessary infrastructure to put the pipes down um, in places where you're not quite sure who owns the land or who has the right to dig the tunnels and that kind of thing. So it's, logistically, it's a very difficult problem, but there's also the systemic issue. Basically, someone, someone needs a profit motive. Now, it could be that the profit motive comes from the government paying companies to do it, or it could be that it comes from the individuals paying for it. But either way, there has to be um, some some way that people are incentivized to get that water infrastructure out there, because otherwise it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Another section of your report focused on universities, and it was titled The Global Campus. And uh, I, I thought what was particularly intriguing was how you focused on the role, especially in this country, of the corporate sector. And we have about five minutes left. I was wondering if you could talk about that, but I also want to leave some time to get your insight on what's happening in, uh, in Tunisia. Okay, well, very briefly then, one of the things that is really noticeable about um, universities in America is how good they are at collaborating with industry. Um, you, you look at somewhere like MIT, which is a very extreme example, but it has a fantastic number of collaborations um, with companies. It's very good at um, incubating uh, ideas within the campus that then turn into companies. There's an assumption that a lot of research you will share 
um, resources with companies and they will put up money and expertise and the university will provide its own expertise and it's a very collaborative process because a lot of and, and, lot and you of, showed this that it was really how MIT was established to, and founded in 1861 to accelerate the industrialization of, of the US and I, I didn't realize that that's 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 exactly right and it, it has sort of global reach and they, they they're you know MIT is fantastic because they they will put um, you know, if you actually go there as an undergraduate, it will cost you a vast sum of money, but you can actually get all their courses for free online. Um, they've been putting them up there for some time now. Um, and so you, you, you have, you know, hundreds of times more people um, making use of those courses than actually attend the, the, the university. And you've also, um, I mean, there was a study in 2009 that found that um, MIT alumni had founded more than 25,000 companies that were still going then um, and generated annual sales of $2 trillion and, 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 and were employing 3.3 million people. And that's from a university that, that, that only has, you know, a couple of tens of thousands of, of, of undergraduates. It's really quite a small organization. So it's very impressive. Um, I want to congratulate Sheila. She told us that Nassim Talab, um, who spoke at Davos in 2009, uh, is the author of The Black Swan, and said that uh, attending the World Economic Forum's annual meeting was a waste of time. Fortunately, that is not the uh, perception of, of, of all the people who will be there, there next week. Uh, some of our listeners know I have a long-time interest in, in Tunisia, and so uh, um, given your background and being, the for a while, the Africa reporter and having written this very interesting book, The Shackled Continent, what do you think is going to happen, and what is the impact What's the message for uh, other Arab leaders of the Jasmine Revolution? I think that the the other Arab leaders will be very nervous because this shows that um, even um, a an autocracy, even a a, a dictatorship that well, Tunisia is not quite a dictatorship, but you know, a, even a, a strong man who appears invulnerable, who who's been there for a very long time, and everyone's just completely used to him being there, um, can disappear just overnight, just incredibly quickly. Um, and I think that people will be very nervous, um, you know, from Egypt, for example, um, and possibly even in you know um, other parts of the Arab world, Saudi Arabia will be nervous about this. I also think that there's a broader lesson here. Because, you know, I don't think that the world divides so neatly into, you know, Arab parts of the world and Asian parts of the world and so on. I think that there is, there is a, a universal yearning that people have to have some choice, to have some control over who their government is. And they may differ about the precise way that that's, that's going to be organized. But basically, most people want to be, to be free and, and to have a choice as to who rules them. And so... I would take the, the lesson that, you know, most, almost everybody thinks of, of the Chinese government as being absolutely set in stone and you've got to assume that it's going to be a one-party state forever. But I think when that changes, it's going to be very sudden, and I think we need to be prepared for it. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Um, we are all going to be reading with, with keen interest what happens uh, next week at, at, at Davos. And I uh, also want to remind our audience, if you're not already a subscriber, please go to economist.com to start your subscription today. Please also visit dfwworld.org forward slash Global IQ to sign up for the latest updates and information on Global IQ with The Economist. And there you can register for our February 22nd program, which will focus on the special report, Feeding the World, and that will be with The Economist globalization correspondent, John Parker.
Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's podcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and our new sponsor, Jones Day. And remember, together The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.